afternoon and welcome. Uh, please do continue to eat your lunches. We're going to go ahead and begin the program. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President and Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. Thank you all very much for being here today. We certainly appreciate uh, what I think is going to be an important and interesting discussion. Uh, I want to begin by thanking in advance Jeff uh, Dinwoody, who's going to be our moderator. He was largely responsible for putting together putting together today's program. So uh, thank you for that, Jeff. And I'm going to introduce him very briefly. Uh, I understand bios are available online nowadays. So in the interest of moving right to the programming, let me just let you know that uh, Jeff is an associate at Davis Polk's Financial Institutions Group here in Washington, D.C., where he regularly represents clients before the current SEC, uh, FINRA, and the CFTC. Uh, before that, importantly, he was an attorney in the SEC's Division of Trading and Markets, and he's been a good friend of the Federalist Society for years now. Uh, uh, and let me turn it over to you, Jeff. Thanks. So thanks for that, Dean, and thanks, uh, everybody, for coming. Um, also wanted to thank uh, Paul, Annette, and Troy both for your interest in the panel, uh, your enthusiasm, and, of course, taking the time to do it. Um, before getting started, just wanted to cover uh, a few quick housekeeping points. Um, so look, there's obviously uh, almost an endless list of topics and questions that we could cover in this panel. To keep ourselves organized, what we've decided to do is divide the time that we have for the panel into three main portions. Uh, so for the first half hour or so, we'll uh, focus on the current regulatory landscape um, and hear the panelists' thoughts on many of the hot topics that the SEC, uh, other regulators, and Congress are focused on today. Uh, after that, we'll take a look back in time uh, at your tenures as commissioners. Um, and then in the third portion, we'll look ahead to the future of SEC and financial regulation generally. Um, questions from all of you in the audience and comments are very much encouraged. Uh, what we'll do is we'll leave a, a block of time at the end of the panel. Uh, 10 or 15 minutes, and if you could uh, hold your questions until then, we'll, uh, we'll go around the room and, uh, and go through them. Um, uh, some folks from the Federal Society will walk around. If you raise your hand, we'll walk around with microphones. Please wait until, uh, until they come to you with the microphone. Um, and so with that, uh, let's uh, go ahead and get started. Um, and I think, Annette, it makes sense to start with you. Um, so look, there's been a lot said and written uh, over the past couple years about Dodd-Frank. Uh, there's been a lot of focus on certain shortcomings and issues and challenges. Um, let's actually start off in a positive place, though, and hear your thoughts as well as uh, Paul and Troy can chime in as well on what Congress got right in Dodd-Frank. Well, first, thank you for having me here and uh, for the Federalist Society being so ecumenical as to have a former Democratic commissioner. Uh, on the panel. Um, uh, I'm probably um, the one who, of the three of us, has the most positive things to say, I suspect, Paul, about uh, <laughs> uh, Dodd-Frank. But um, I think there are some things that um, uh, the legislation got right, even if we have uh, some issues with the implementation. Um, I do think that you know, that we had come this far in the uh, swaps market to have, you know, such a uh, mature market, multi-trillion dollar market that was, you know, largely unregulated um, and that obviously 
could pose you know, serious risks to the financial system was really quite a surprise. So even if one takes the position that derivatives were not the cause of the financial crisis, uh, certainly Dodd-Frank was an opportunity uh, to, um, you know, to address those issues. And so certainly what is Title VII, uh, which is the, the regulation of the derivatives market, I think was uh, probably uh, one of the better thought out uh, provisions. Um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, the parts that have been difficult, as I said, certainly in the implementation, as, as I think a lot of people uh, here would probably agree, the fact that um, the, the regulation was split between two agencies was uh, very awkward, and, and we still are struggling with those um, jurisdictional differences. Um, but again, in the long run, I think that, was, uh, that made a lot of sense. Um, I think the focus on systemically important uh, financial institutions, um, you know, in theory, I think is uh, very important. Um, uh, certainly, I think having a uh, gradations of, of regulation depending on sort of your one's footprint in the marketplace uh, makes sense. Um, and I would say finally that, um, you know, given the regulation of the swaps market and given the fact that we now have so many more products, Going through clearinghouses, I think, you know, Title VIII, where there was a lot more focus on sort of the systemically important financial market utilities, um, and certainly our experience has been that those financial market utilities are critically important. I think that that also uh, made sense to focus on those issues. So I, I would say uh, those are three that I would have, you know, pretty positive things to say about. Well, since, since there's silence, uh, uh, in Paul, terms of Paul, other, Paul, other positives. Paul is stunned. <laughs> no, I, uh, no, I'm happy to, happy to uh, weigh in, too. And in the sense of, you know, the spirit of keeping it uh, positive also, um, you know, I had to really scratch my head, though, to figure out, because I, I do, you know, uh, as you all know, probably Jeb Hensterling is working on a draft, which I think he might unveil uh, next week, of a uh, repeal and replace for Dodd-Frank. And so I am uh, think that is a really commendable effort. And um, so I'm uh, anxiously waiting what might come out of that. So out of the 2,319 pages of, um, you know, I won't even uh, characterize what I think the statute is, but, you know, just suffice to say that if uh, Chairman Dodd at the time had to say, well, in a similar thing to what Nancy Pelosi said about uh, the Affordable Care Act, that we'll have to see what it's like in place until we know what's actually in it. Um, I, I could uh, focus on a couple of things that um, you know I think are salutary, and one is a little provision 939 capital A, um, which is the basically a direction directive by Congress to the SEC to, and other agencies to remove references to credit ratings um, from their rules. And way back in 2003 or so, when I was commissioner with Cindy Glassman, we um, basically were advocating such a thing. And I remember there were a number of people at the SEC and the staff and, you know, on the commission who said, oh, well, that's impossible. But I think the SEC has done a pretty good job of tackling that, you know, with respect to money market mutual funds was one real big area. Uh, one thing, Reg M is kind of one issue that's still hanging out there, um, but uh, 
you know, we'll see how that uh, how that proceeds. But I think that is one good thing uh, that's come out of Dodd-Frank. The second thing is uh, the Inspector General. Um, so back, um, way back in 1950, there was a, um, it was a government reorganization plan that Congress passed that had to do with SEC and other agencies. And up until that time, the commissioners sat as a body and kind of decided, okay, we'll hire a new clerk in the mailroom and we'll, you know, do X, Y, and Z with respect to the SEC. And so in this reorg plan, basically, Congress vested in the chairman decisions over human resources and budget and things like that. Um, and so, but what Dodd-Frank did um, was basically, as far as the inspector general goes, specify that the IG should report to the commission uh, rather than to just the chairman. And so I think that has uh, been a really good development. It's, um, uh, you know, the chairman used to have, a, I think, a very um, vested interest in the IG. And we saw, I think, frankly, when Mary Shapiro was chairman, how bad um, that could get uh, with respect to um, uh, things, issues like uh, the leasing issue that the SEC had and, and other things that happened, um, you know, which probably didn't get as full vetting as they should have with respect to the activities of the chairman. So I think that's, um, you know, those are two things I would sort of point to. Let me kind of build on, on those points and answer it in a little different way, which is, you know, whether we think about it in terms of good or bad, and you can see some, some different views, and you'll hear more over the course uh, of, the, of the next hour. And I can't think of a speech after Dodd-Frank came out when I was at the SEC where at least somewhere in the speech I didn't talk about the overregulation and overreach uh, of Dodd-Frank. And one of, I think, the challenges, even in trying to identify something somebody likes, is, is to Paul's point, we, we don't have isolated pieces of legislation or isolated changes to the federal securities laws or the Bank Holding Company Act, what have you. We have the totality that is Dodd-Frank. And so one, I think, challenge when we're thinking about regulatory change is not to just think about any particular provision in isolation, but recognize the totality of what's being wrought. Because it could be the case that, yes, we can identify something in a particular piece of legislation. Well, that something has some redeeming quality. But if the price we have to pay is we get the rest of it, then on a cumulative basis, it's simply too much. And I think one of the big challenges for policymakers going forward, and I think it's an important kind of refinement to the notion of cost-benefit analysis, is thinking about cumulative costs as well as cumulative benefits. But when you think about the cumulative costs, you could have a piece of legislation. You could have a particular provision where you look at it in isolation and say, well, that makes sense. You could have another statutory provision and say, well, that makes sense. You could have a third and a fourth and a fifth and say, well, on their own, they each make sense. But then you ask the question, what about all five together? And you say, well, of course not. You would never do all five together. And so often what we get is we get all five together, all 10 together, all 20 together. And if you just look at things piece by piece, it can belie the complexity and the overburden of the total package. And right now we're living with the total package of Dodd-Frank. I think we're already starting to see some of the deleterious effects. We think about, for example, liquidity uh, in the fixed income markets and the like being seen to dry up. There could be a lot of explanations for that. One that folks point to is, is the uh, abundance uh, of regulation. But this cumulative impact Point, I think is a lens that is important to bring to bear in assessing any legislative uh, development and think about it uh, in toto uh, in addition to thinking about, again, the merits and demerits of any piece, uh, not overlooking the cumulative impact that's brought to bear. So, so look, the, a, a sort of related question that I've been thinking about, Troy, and maybe we'll start with you on this. In some ways, it's, it, it's potentially contradictory to what you've just 
described in terms of the cumulative impact. But if you look at things in isolation, are there any areas that you can point to that you've been thinking about saying, hey, this is a missed opportunity. Uh, Dodd-Frank did all these things, but there's a missed opportunity here. Yeah, so if, if one thinks, and there may be people who have different views on this, but if one thinks that the root cause, or at least a root cause, of the financial crisis, it was the housing market, then housing. And Fannie, Freddie, GSE's housing uh, finance uh, was, not, uh, was not addressed. Um, and so I'm a big, a big believer in trying to identify and address root causes, because if what you instead focus on are symptoms and behaviors, and you go after a particular behavior or what we can think of as a symptom, uh, but you haven't actually rooted out the cause, that's just going to pop up someplace else. And the thing that pops up, frankly, may be worse than the thing you thought you cured, because you haven't really addressed, uh, addressed the problem. Uh, and so from a, from a root cause perspective, uh, I think that's a point that you may find uh, a lot of agreement among uh, different folks, uh, that that was something that was not uh, addressed and still needs tending to. Yeah, I, mean, I would say that um, the biggest disappointment was that the uh, financial regulatory system was not restructured. Um, and I'm sure you agree with that. Um, the fact that, uh, you know, we had a crisis of that magnitude and an opportunity um, to look at the multiple regulators who we have uh, addressing similar issues. We have overlaps, we had gaps, um, and really we ended up with um, virtually the same number of regulators. We um, eliminated the OTS, but we got the CFPB um, and FSOC and all the other um, uh, structures as well. I mean, really, um, Obviously, that was probably for political reasons, that uh, they were unable to reach consensus. But that, that has exacerbated the problems. It's a combination of, uh, you know, Dodd-Frank regulating, you know, a, a huge number of activities sort of across the board, but with, um, uh, you know, the same number of regulators, a lot of regulatory overlap. And, and worse yet, there are a number of situations in which the regulators have to coordinate. And that has been a major problem. I think the case in point, the, the logical one, the classic one is the Volcker rule, where uh, you, know, you had five regulators who had to coordinate to, to do the rulemaking. Um, that was extremely difficult. It took them a very long time. And now uh, the interpretive questions are supposed to be done jointly as well. And that's been extremely difficult to get consensus on. And therefore, there's very little guidance on what to do. Uh, just getting pretty simple FAQs out of the agencies have been uh, a real challenge. And so that, that I think, has um, sort of uh, made it much more difficult for the financial industry to cope uh, with the regulations. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think the huge missed opportunity is not uh, reforming everything. So the Office of Thrift Supervision finally expired, put out of its misery, um, but we got 13 new other offices and regulatory agencies uh, in its stead. And, um, and so, you know, there had been a lot of work prior to the 
um, to the financial crisis that done by Treasury and others. There's a Treasury blueprint talking about Twin Peaks and, and other things like that, other approaches. <laughs> and the biggest tragedy, of course, in Dodd-Frank going through is that it was Christmas treed with lots of little political things like conflict minerals, mineral extraction, things that had absolutely zero to do um, with the financial cross crisis, a pay ratio for CEOs to workers and all this other things. And then you saw the SEC, unfortunately, through its chairman, decide to do all the political ones first. So the, uh, the ink wasn't even dry on Dodd-Frank when the SEC came out with its ill-fated proxy access release, which, of course, was blown out of um, a court with a judge writing the opinion, calling it unutterably mindless, at least the way they were trying to apply it to mutual funds. So anyway, so the huge missed opportunity, I think, was really focusing on the root causes of the financial crisis. And it will happen again, obviously, where, you know, the bubble's building. We don't know exactly where, and it's going to burst, and here we go again. So, And, and so, Paul, you actually, uh, just right there, you said it will happen again with bubbles bursting. It makes me think of FSOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Council. Um, so look, I, you know, a lot of concerns have been raised over the years, both in terms of procedural points as well as the structure of FSOC. Um, curious to hear your views on that, and also more generally, you know, what should FSOC be focused on on a going forward basis? Yeah, well, so FSOC, I think in a way, the concept of it's not such a bad idea. The Financial Stability Oversight Council kind of builds on what used to be the President's Working Group for uh, Financial Markets, which came out of the um, big problem of uh, long-term capital management and whatnot in the late 90s. So the idea was to get everybody sitting around a table and chatting about things. And there's some good things about FSOC, like, for example, there's the concept of uh, having, if there be some sort of a of you know intractable difference between two of the members of FSOC, then the whole group sits around and kind of arbitrates between them and chooses. So FCC versus CFTC, which of course was another missed opportunity in not combining those two agencies, uh, but anyway, um, out of the financial crisis. So there is some element of that in FSOC, but the trouble is, you know, it was very poorly conceived. The Treasury Secretary has a veto power over it, which injects politics um, into the whole thing, which these issues, that's another, you know, terrible uh, thing out of the financial crisis is how political things have become. And just the fact that, you know, when Annette uh, referred to herself as a Democrat commissioner, I find that just so, you know, sad that uh, back in the old days, I used to work for Arthur Levitt and Richard Breeden. We never really thought of who was what. And um, when uh, uh, when Richard Shelby changed um, his party affiliation from Democrat to Republican, Rick Roberts, who was a commissioner, did the same thing because he had worked for Shelby before. And so we all had to kind of like die for our books, uh, rule books, to see, well, what does that mean, you know, um, if there was a change? So back in the old days, nobody really thought about it. Unfortunately, you know, 20 years later, people do. So I think the real problem is that, you know, then the FSOC, you know, has this political agenda, basically. The Fed is really in the driver's seat. Um, you know, it lacks due process, uh, rule of law. There's no transparency, as the judge even found in the MetLife case uh, here a, a month or so ago. Um, and so, you know, the real question is, I think, out of all of this and what a hash 
the Fed has made out of this. You know, going back to Graham Leach Bliley, there was a big discussion as to whether or not to get the Fed completely out of supervision and regulation. I think the time for that has come. So I hope that is one thing that we'll see happens to really put the Fed back in its box and have it just uh, do what it even if you can argue that it does a good job on that monetary policy, whatever, you know, the, the concept of having mandarins in Washington sitting around a table peering into their crystal ball and with enough information and just their brilliance and hearing brilliance, they can prick bubbles before they happen, I think is a fool's errand and, um, and we shouldn't hang our head on it. I'm a little, <clears throat> a little more positive on the FSOC, although there certainly are challenges. <laughs> I mean, there, there certainly are challenges, and I think the FSOC <clears throat> was formed in part as, as the compromise, right, for the fact that, that we did not have financial regulatory consolidation. So it's like we'll all form a committee and coordinate. And so some of the issues, obviously, that they focus on are really quite important when you focused on what are the sort of macro issues of financial stability and what should regulators be focusing on. But it's, it's like any other... Um, any other, you know, committee or body, they they don't agree on things. Uh, everybody gets a vote, and not everyone has the same expertise on particular issues. So I do think that they're. Uh, I think the SEC is likely to to get the most pressure there because they that is it, that which was exactly the same case with the the president's working group when I staffed the president's working group. Uh, most of the meetings involved. SEC issues because the SEC was the market regulator. So it was all, well, what is the SEC doing? What do you have to say? It was like a show and tell for the SEC. And I think a lot of <clears throat> what happens in the FSOC is the same. So there's a little bit of problem, you know, with the SEC trying to, um, you know, do what is in its mandate and yet getting pressure from the FSOC to perhaps do things a little differently or having the Fed insinuate its views in terms of what should happen with money market funds or whatever. I mean, there's obviously um, you know, many challenges uh, with that, with that structure. Um, so, and, and I think there are, you know, some concerns about transparency, although I think they've made, you know, a good bit of it public, not everything, but, um, but, you know, it's sort of where we are, unfortunately. Tell it so, to the judge. Tell it to the judge. Well, not in, uh, not, <laughs> not everything with respect to their decisions on uh, designations, but there are yeah. minutes that are public. But, um, but in any case, I think, uh, as I said, I think it was done partly as a compromise because they did not consolidate the agencies. I think one of the concerns, I think it echoes much of what Paul was saying, that I have about the FSOC is the potential for it, by, by virtue of the way it's structured, to erode the independence of independent agencies, the independent financial regulators. And, and that's, it, to the extent that happens, that's a, that's a, that's a profound um, concern, at least on my part, because it really goes to the underpinnings for why we have independent agencies like the SEC, like the CFT. One, expertise. Two, independence. The basic argument being the independence allows them the room to exercise their expertise. And that one may not like every single decision that a particular agency arrives at, but that over time, the combination of expertise and independence is uh, a good way for those agencies to go about the nitty-gritty work that they that they have in front of them. Well, with the, with the structure of the FSOC, and this was alluded to, it's not, for example, the SEC that's a member, it's just the, the chair in his or her you know, personal capacity as the chair who's the member, uh, whether that's the CFTC, whether that's the SEC, or what have you. So when you think about that structure, you think about the transparency uh, concerns that, 
uh, have been raised. You think about the ways in which uh, folks can lean on the chairs of other agencies to try to sway them to move policy and rulemaking in one direction or another. Those have the effect or can have the effect of eroding those independent agencies' uh, independence, not in the strict textbook sort of way, but in the practical, on the ground, how do things really happen sort of way. And, and I think that's very significant. I think it's too early to know exactly how that concern will play itself out. Right now it's a concern. We'll see with more time what that ends up uh, amounting to. Hopefully not much. Hopefully my concern proves to be uh, unwarranted, but it's a worry I have that's based in the structure uh, of the FSOC itself. Now one bit I would argue of silver lining in all of this is the MetLife decision, um, where the uh, court uh, overturned the, the designation of, of MetLife as a sy systemically important financial institution, an opinion that's gotten a lot of, uh, of attention, uh, bringing to bear, in effect, requirements of cost-benefit analysis through the application of the Administrative uh, Procedures Act. So we don't need to get in those folks want to, the nitty-gritty around the APA and all the rest. Uh, but it's a really uh, important decision that uh, I think has implications beyond just the FSOC because it really is uh, I think, personally, uh, a coherent, sound, uh, concise uh, articulation of the APA and what it requires of government bodies that are subject to it, just as a matter of good, sound decision-making, uh, set aside whether or not one likes the outcome of any regulatory process, just what the demands are when you're trying to reach a balanced decision that thinks about the pros and the cons of any action you're going to take. You know, I, I agree with Troy that the, you know, the jury's out in terms of how it's going to, you know, work long-term. Um, I do think, and, and Paul alluded to this, I, th I think it has, I don't think it's had an impact ultimately on what an agency like the SEC has, where they've come out as a body. I do think it has affected their ordering of how they address things when there's sort of consensus within the FSOC that something needs to be moved to the front of the line, uh, whether it's money market funds or, um, you know, mutual fund issues, asset managers. You, I, I, I get the sense that uh, what happens is that becomes sort of a priority, but that the SEC has attempted to maintain their independence in terms of how they address it and in asserting their expertise, at least as, as to now. I think that's what they're doing, which is very important and very healthy because I couldn't agree more that the importance of having an independent agency, you know, is critical. And if, if you lose that in this process, then that's really not what was intended when these when these regulators were established. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to think about if you were representing the SEC, which is another issue that we have to talk about at some point, that the chairman of the SEC is the basically the representative. It can't be. It's not the commission or whatever. But leaving that aside, um, if you're the sole capital markets person sitting around this table and you're looking at nine other people, who most of whom are bank regulators, um, that's not necessarily a comfortable position to be in. Or if you are somebody like Roy Woodall, who's the only insurance expert on the thing, and you, if you read his dissents in both the Prue designation as a sci-fi and um, MetLife, also 
that designation. I mean, they're scathing of, you know, the staff's work, of the um, of the rationale of the FSOC as a body, um, you know, and how they don't basically know anything about insurance. So that's just kind of an, uh, an insight into how those discussions must go, but it, it's actually really troubling. So I salute the judge um, who, uh, you know, had found fault with the designation process for MetLife, and salute MetLife, actually, for challenging the whole thing. So look, we can obviously talk about Dodd-Frank for the next several hours, um, there, and there's obviously a lot of different issues to talk about, but uh, I think it makes sense. So let's pivot to another big issue that's on the SEC's agenda, which is equity market structure. Um, so uh, as people in this room, most of you will know, this has been a big area of SEC focus over the last several years, including, among other things, uh, the SEC chair giving two big speeches two summers ago, laying out a very ambitious agenda of market-related reforms. And so I, with the acknowledgement that's a very broad question, I want to start with you, Troy, and just say, you know, and hear your thoughts on both, you know, do you think the SEC uh, is taking the right approach with what they've been doing, uh, including setting up an advisory committee and doing some rulemaking sort of at a snail's pace? And if you have any thoughts on what's the best approach going forward? So th this is one of those topics, like, like many topics, where I think the challenge for the agency has been there's an issue and you go after the issue, then there's another issue, you go after that issue, there's another issue, you go after that issue. And so you're constantly going after some new issue that presents itself. And folks, including my uh, former colleague at the commission, uh, uh, Dan Gallagher, myself, um, have talked about, Paul probably has as well, maybe even Annette as well, but this notion of a holistic review, sometimes I refer to instead as a first principles uh, uh, type of an approach, which is to say instead of trying to go after the latest issue that's capturing folks' attention, we need to take a step back and have a bottom-up, holistic, first principles, however you want to characterize it, assessment of our market structures, including the regulatory regime, and as we think about various behaviors, whatever that may be, speed in the marketplace, fragmentation that people talk about. I would just drop a note. People talk about fragmentation. I'm always quick to say I think about that in terms of competition. And if you talk about it in terms of competition and choice, that's a very different flavor than if you think about it in terms of fragmentation. But however we want to label it, however we want to characterize it, is instead of going after all of these different pieces, not to suggest they're not important, you need to take a step back and try to figure out what's really going on. What's giving rise to all of this? And it may be part of the regulatory regime. It may be other influences on incentives. It may be other technological developments. Had we taken those sorts of steps a few years ago, that sort of an analysis may, be, may have been done by now. And we may be on to then having the firm foundation, this kind of holistic princi first principles-based perspective to then say, all right, what do we want to do? That takes a lot of time, energy, effort. I think with the advisory committee, it kind of speaks to that. The focus on data, which has been a focus over the last few years when it comes to market structure questions, I actually think is a very good thing. One of the things that the studies have demonstrated in many instances is that stuff that people thought were features of markets, in fact, not so much. And that's important, too, because you got to have the right understanding of the markets in order to figure out what to do and in order to try to anticipate what the consequences would be if you do something. So data, economics as a foundational uh, basis for any decision that's going forward, but also this holistic first principles 
approach I think is important or else I think what we're going to do is we're going to address an issue today, something else is going to pop up, we're going to try to address that issue tomorrow, and we may in fact in the process not only not be making things better, we may actually be taking steps back because the thing that manifests itself next may actually be worse than the thing that we thought uh, we were curing. So in my kind of perfect uh, world on this, it would be that sort of an approach. Again, I think there are aspects of that which you can which you can see at play, but I think commitment to that from all interested parties uh, and, and the willingness to then figure out what's going to be best for the markets over the long term is the way to go. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I see Peter Haller over here uh, with, who's with IEX. And so, you know, IEX uh, has, uh, you know, demonstrated some of the, the inherent flaws um, of the current uh, system. So I think that's, um, you know, so uh, good luck to, to you all in, in your, uh, your application. But, you know, so that it's really forcing the SEC to, to focus. And I really, unfortunately, I think, you know, time is swiftly coming to a close with respect to, you know, a real soup to nuts review of uh, market structure, which I do think is long overdue. And obviously, didn't support NMS when it uh, was adopted by the commission back, uh, you know, a dozen years ago. And I just, you know, ultimately, the SEC has gotten the market structure that it, uh, you know, wanted. So with all the you know, pros and cons of that, but the real thing, I think this is what IEX points up, is that, you know, that choice is important and investors and participants in the marketplace ought to have choice. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the SEC took that away from them. So anyway, but hopefully there will, uh, sometime here in the relatively new future, we'll get what Troy's been talking about, a soup to nuts review. Well, I, I'm never quite sure what soup to nuts review means in the sense that um, timing is everything and it's it's important the market keeps changing as we're studying so I think that's the challenge is you know how do you um, you how can you be comfortable that you're looking at something that is going to be the same by the time you're making your decisions that said I think that the information that the regulators have now uh, to work with is far better than it was before. I think what you see, the analysis that you see, um, you know, DERA doing at the SEC is very commendable. The amount of information, uh, the, the data that they share that um, academics can look at is very, very helpful. And so if for, and so I do think that, you know, first principles is, you know, market quality and fairness. And, and fairness, I think, has two elements. One is, is it fair? The other is, is there a perception of fairness? Because I, I definitely think whether the markets are fair or not, there's a perception in some cases, certainly with respect to things like market data and the like, that it's not, it's not fair. There are concerns about that. And I think if, um, you know, you, you start with that and you look at, you know, what is execution quality? What are the, you know, what are the, what, how does the pricing compare to what it used to be? How does, you know, where is it we want it to be? Uh, you know, are the markets linked the way we think they should be or not? Uh, you know, do we have too many order types? Is that causing confusion? All of these things, um, I think we're probably in a better uh, position to address than we've been in a long time. And I think it is important to continuously um, look at these issues and look at the markets. The markets have not stood still. They're not where they were when Reg NMS was done. Uh, 
you know, Europe has markets that have developed quite similarly to the U.S. without Reg NMS. I think a lot of these things have been driven by technology, the speed with which a lot of these things can be done. So it's, it's healthy and, in fact, the SEC's responsibility to continually assess these things and ensure that given the changes that occur in the marketplace that, um, you know, that the regulations are sort of a, appropriately calibrated. If I can just add mm -hmm. um, a one, one point to that, which is an aspect of first principles, when I think about it here, is not just in terms of what are kind of the characteristics in terms of the outcomes that we that we'd like, you know, efficiency, what have you, low trading cost, uh, and the like. But I, I think in, in 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 the following way too, which is, what should the role of the government be in micro engineering our equity market structure? Right. So for me, the first principle is is a very fundamental question here of how much should things be left to the market to figure out now that you have a lot of different trading venues which again, if you think about that in terms of competition and choice, that may argue for less government involvement in terms of trying to figure out every fine point about what the market ought to look like and orienting a rule to that, versus when should the government have more of a role in figuring out and mandating and prescribing the rules of the road that are going to define the market itself. I mean, I've sometimes quipped almost as a joke that, you know, if you think about the totality of the regulatory regime, that lays out all of the, the detailed requirements for our equity market structure, it does make one wonder if the word market is the right, is the right word. Uh, and, and I say that, as I said, in part by way of a quip, but it really is a simple way of capturing this point about how much should this be left to the commission to prescribe in very fine detail versus are we at a point, because there's so much choice and there's competition, for the government itself through the SEC to take a step back and allow more by way of private market, uh, private ordering and the marketplace to come up with its solutions. So that's a fundamental question that I think is part of the assessment uh, without knowing exactly where one would come out uh, on every aspect of that question. And so look, that's obviously, it's an area we could do a whole nother panel on. So, you know, let's, let's turn the page and, you know, originally I wanted to cover uh, and get thoughts on the role of bank regulators in the current environment. But just because we're uh, getting a little short on time, let's jump to uh, another hot topic, which is political disclosure. Um, and so, uh, you know, as a lot of folks in this room know that uh, uh, a lot of people and some members of Congress have been putting pressure on the SEC to require companies to disclose their political spending. Um, Paul, let's start with you, and if you could just lay out maybe the pros and cons of any such SEC rulemaking. Uh, yeah, well, that's it's a huge topic, um, but I think uh, when you look at you know all the things that have gone on, Mary Jo White has really put uh, it very well as far as you know, what this issue um, is all about. And just about a, you know a couple two three weeks ago, the SEC came out with a concept release looking at the rules regarding disclosure uh, by corporations called Reg SK, um, which was a great, uh, I think, a, a real step forward that the SEC did way back in the 1980s. Linda Quinn was the head of corporation finance at the time, and the concept was let's get all the rules together because there had been like higgledy-piggledy rules, you know, 
um, that you had to chase around the uh, the rule book to, to figure out. So everything in one place, and over time, of course, things have grown. And Mary Jo White has talked about the need to refocus on materiality. And I hear this, at, you know, at, when I talk to um, large asset managers and small asset managers around the country, the, the first uh, uh, thing off their tongues is, you know, how much people are drowning in kind of uh, in, in information that's not material to their investment decision. And the trouble is that it very, it, that the, the things that are not material drown out then uh, the materiality part. So political disclosure, quote unquote, is one of these issues. This is not about political disclosure. Corporations already have to disclose if they give money to candidates. This all comes down to um, you know basically trade associations, um, and um, uh, you know, and, and the five hundred one c fours and things like that. So the the idea is from a politi politicized activists. So you have activists who are on one stripe going after you know the companies with respect to economics, and so that's one thing. Uh, you know, more power to them. Politicized activists going all the way back to Saul Alinsky in his book Rules for Radicals. Um, in the penultimate chapter, it was called Target Proxy. So Saul Alinsky figured out that the real way to uh, get your voice heard and to get effect change in corporations is to try to get uh, things onto the proxy card and to uh, basically um, you know, beat the drum enough to, with an interim effect to have uh, management of corporations uh, bow to your uh, wishes. So that is the same thing with respect to this issue. Politicized activists uh, have been focusing on it um, in all different types of uh, ways. But uh, what's really amazing is if you look at all of the big money managers, uh, you know, the top five, seven of them, whatever it is, they vote against these issue, these uh, shareholder proposals, you know, something like 99% of the time or something like that. And the ones that the, there's like a floor around 20%, 22%, something like that of people who vote uh, for it. And it comes from basically state pension funds, union pension funds, um, and then uh, funds that vote according to uh, the proxy advisory firms, ISS and Glass-Lewis, who tend to support these things. So Mary Jo White has realized and I think articulated very well that this issue is better left to other agencies who are into the um, or Congress itself, frankly, who are into this issue, who can look at you know the pros and cons of what kind of disclosure is necessary. If the SEC would act, it would only affect corporations. You know, funny enough, it wouldn't affect unions or other um, expenditures that way. So the whole thing, and if you look at how these particular um, proposals have morphed over time, it is all about uh, you know uh, um, a name and shame type of thing when they are trying to get corporations uh, to disclose their lobbying. That's how most of these um, things have morphed from pure, pure political disclosure um, when they figured out that, you know, in fact, corporations already have to disclose things. It's gone really towards lobbying and donations to trade associations. So it's very politicized, and I'm, I salute Mary Jo uh, for uh, saying that this is not really what the SEC should be about. Yeah, I think Mary Jo you know, has uh, really hit the nail on the head. I, there's been, as as you probably know, a long tradition of the SEC being pressured to add um, items that are of sort of political significance to particular uh, uh, groups or members of Congress to um, uh, 
to the SEC disclosures. And it's just, it's not that these things shouldn't be public, but that's not the venue and that's not the SEC's mission, I don't think. And so I think it's been um, sort of a, a constant struggle over the years for the Division of Corporation Finance to try to be somewhat pure in, in maintaining their goal of having material information that investors, you know, want to see, um, you know, in the corporate disclosure. So it, it's a very, as Paul said, a very, very political and politicized issue and uh, something that the commission, I think, is going to continue to have to grapple with. Uh, so at this point, let's actually turn back in time and take a look at your tenures as commissioners. Um, an interesting place, I think, to start is surprises, and it's looking back years later, uh, are there any issues that you worked on or that you <coughs> focused on uh, that turned out differently than uh, how you were thinking about it at the time? I'd, I'd love to hear from all of you on that, but let's start, uh, Troy, if you have any thoughts. Sure. <laughs> Since I left, uh, I guess most recently, a few years, a few years back, I, at some level, yeah, I'm gonna have a better insight on that a few years from now, just because these things take uh, take a while to play uh, themselves out. One, one where it's a rule that I supported, um, I guess by by support I voted for. Um, there's always a lot that goes into a decision to vote for or, or or against something. It was one that I voted for, although I had my reservations. Um, but I think looking back, uh, my reservations perhaps should have been even more acute uh, than they were, and that's form PF. Um, and I won't get into the details around what form PF is. It requires a bunch of reporting uh, by private uh, funds. Um, uh, that's one where, again, as I look back, the, the concerns that I had, I think perhaps should have been even more acute uh, than, uh, than I had uh, at the time. So I'll uh, kind of notch that in, uh, in that category. Um, another is... Uh, cyber in the sense that you know, I, I personally was starting to think about it but was not speaking out about it and given the significance of the issue it's one as I look back where I say you know is there something where maybe I should have been more publicly uh, involved and engaged uh, that would probably go frankly uh, in that camp uh, there were a lot of things uh, again, where you vote for, you vote against, and you'll see how they ultimately play themselves out. Part of it, too, on the question of surprises is, you know, you never know for sure exactly how things are going to play themselves out. I mean, this kind of echoes you know, my being a staunch proponent of cost-benefit. I mean, I think if you sit back and you say, look, I'm going to do the best I can and talk to a lot of different folks with lots of different perspectives and try to identify how this could go well and how this could go poorly, if you do that robustly, then when you look back, the element of surprise is somewhat dissipated, only in the sense that, yeah, no, I knew that it could play out well, even though I voted no, or I knew it could play out badly, even though I voted, I voted yes. I think in large respect, you're then kind of looking at magnitudes, and with just uh, even still a few years uh, uh, in the rearview mirror, I think is a little soon uh, to tell. But those are, those are a couple that, that jump to my mind. The, the only other thing I would, I would quickly note, because it really goes to the essence of the question, uh, is the importance of retrospective reviews, because part of this too is, is you know, I'm sure if I you know, looked at every single vote I ever took or everything I considered and did a systematic analysis, I may say, aha, I never would have thought it was going to be quite this way or quite that way, which I think just goes to the point of the SEC, other regulators for that matter, I think needing to do more by way of rigorous retrospective reviews to look back at significant rulemakings and say, hey, is this rulemaking more costly than we thought? Maybe there's actually more benefits than we thought. It doesn't tell you which way that review was going to come out. Cost-benefit analysis is prospective. You anticipate outcomes. Retrospective review is backward looking. You have outcomes. 
that's a really good exercise to then reassess. Maybe we need to do more of what we were doing. Maybe we need to pull back, notwithstanding the best of intentions. It didn't quite go the way the way we run, the way we wanted. I think that's an important thing to do, and it really really gets at the uh, at the at the basis of your question, frankly. I think I'd answer it um, from a little different perspective, which is um, when I look back and, and think about what we did and, and what really worked even better than I thought it would, I, I think that the Commission's response to 9-11 was really extraordinary. I don't think we could have predicted at the time that the staff would have stepped up the way they did, that the Commission would have been as creative as it was in, in coming up with um, you know, things that we could give um, relief for in order to, um, you know, assist the, the markets at the time. I think the, uh, the ability of the automation review people, who I don't think we, you know, fully appreciated their capabilities, the, the way they went and uh, worked with the markets to ensure that when they came back up that they were ready to do that and that they wouldn't sort of go down again in a way that would cause, you know, tremendous panic to the system. All of those things, I think, were... Um, you know, really quite gratifying. I think what came out of it also, the, the amount of um, attention on things like business continuity, which has turned out to be, you know, critically important and something that even today we focus on a lot. It relates to this, even to the cybersecurity issues. Um, I think that was, uh, you know, very positive and the commission comported itself very well. I think it was, you know, in some ways, if you look back, it was one of the high points of the commission really showing, uh, you know, what it was capable of. It's also, um, sort of bittersweet because when you look back you realize how uh, in a crisis like that the regulators actually worked very well together in a way that perhaps we're not in quite the same kumbaya moment right now um they really it, it did seem like the jurisdictional issues uh sort of fell to the side and people you know worked very much together and and actually uh, even competitors on wall street you know stepped up and assisted assisted others providing you know, space or things like that, or or uh, all manner of assistance to competitors to uh, to bring the markets back up. So I, you know, a little different type of answer, but one where I do think uh, we couldn't have predicted that it was going to you know go as well as it did. Yeah, that's that's a great point, and that's I think that's thanks to all the leadership there at the SEC. At the, I wasn't there at the time, but. Uh, uh, and then the hard work of the staff and the others. So that was really great. So, um, and I, I guess, you know, to, um, to the question there, there are a couple things that come to mind as far as, you know, votes uh, go. One is, uh, so I was just talking about political uh, disclosure, um, that whole issue. So that brings up the whole proxy voting disclosure rule, which is the first uh, vote, uh, first rule that I voted no on. Uh, so it's two hundred six four six. It's uh, called now. But uh, I, you know, I, I think I kind of anticipated that there would be lots of costs to it and un unintended consequences. But I didn't realize. Um, that and here in the in retrospect to look at how the proxy advisory firms ISS and Glass Lewis have gotten so much uh, market clout because of that rule um, and really because of um, a following staff no action letter that basically told mutual funds that in order to fulfill the responsibilities under 20646 that they could basically 
FOB-OFF um, analysis to these uh, advisory firms. So I think that's one thing that, of course, SEC um, has to uh, you know, uh, look at again in Congress itself. Uh, there was a hearing uh, um, that um, was held just in House Financial Services uh, last week, I think, or, or so the week before um, regarding that. So at some point, I think that will be addressed. Um, 20647 is another rule called the Compliance Rule that was adopted at about the same time in 2003. But I just, I'm disturbed that uh, looking at some of the enforcement actions that it's now being used as a cudgel against <coughs> chief compliance officers. And I don't think it was intended that way at all. I voted for that rule, um, in fact, uh, at the time. And then finally, a third one was the rule that I really regret most of all voting for. And that was, um, had to do with Sarbanes-Oxley 404, um, so the internal <coughs> control uh, review um, uh, requirement of Sarbanes-Oxley and audit standard two, which is of Peekaboo, the public, company, the public Company Accounting Oversight Board, mouthful, um, which was created by Sarbanes-Oxley. But uh, audit standard two was way too in the weeds and um, had a huge expenditure of uh, funds by, um, companies, large and small. Um, we you tackled that uh, when all the problems started to come up and uh, approved Audit Standard 5 at the time, and I thought that would have driven the stake through the heart of that whole move, um, uh, you know, to, to really um, nitpick um, the whole internal control um, review aspect. Um, but apparently it's back. I hear, you know, apparently even from the uh, chief accountant of the SEC, I was on a, um, you know, a panel with him not too long ago and at, at SEC Speaks. And so, you know, those issues um, are coming back again. So I think this whole aspect of Peekaboo and the SEC and the interaction of them, and especially in the wake of the Supreme Court's uh, decision that says that the SEC is the one to have um, really plenary authority over peekaboo or else it is unconstitutional, I think is a really important uh, lesson that uh, we need to carry forward. Annette, in your response, you alluded to the importance of coordination among regulators. You know, and I know working with you now for the last five years is something that we spend a lot of time on, you know, both uh, with domestic clients and non-U.S. clients on regulatory coordination, both within the U.S. and with non-U.S. regulators. Um, it'd be interesting to hear you comment on what you observed when you were a commissioner versus what you perceive to be the case today. Yeah, I think, um, you know, since the financial crisis, the amount of uh, coordination among uh, regulators internationally has increased substantially. Um, we used to, you know, have uh, IOSCO, and, and uh, that had, you know, some influence on, on the uh, commission's work, but you know, since the financial crisis and the commitment of the G20 to, to basically coordinate on a lot of um, initiatives and the the uh, you know formation of the FSB, which is the Financial Stability Board, which is the successor to the Financial Stability Forum that I served on for over nine years. I mean, it's taken a very very different. Role. I mean, the FSB, um, unlike its predecessor, really um, has a lot, does a lot more um, actual work. I mean, they don't just sort of recommend that things be done. They, they do studies, they make recommendations, they get their members to agree 
uh, to do rulemakings that are consistent with those recommendations. So, um, and that has that does have some you know impact on the SEC's agenda. Um, and so I think the the amount of uh, coordination is is much greater, and it, I think the requ the requirements to coordinate really come at the highest levels of the government through the through the G20 agreements. Yeah, I, uh, just to uh, second that, if you look at the FSB, it's sort of, you know, whenever you hear financial stability, just thank bank regulators and oy vey, you know, it's uh, a real problem um, because of the conceit by the bank regulators that they can bring financial stability. And overall, if you listen to Governor Turillo of the um, Federal Reserve, who openly talks about what he calls, he's coined a new term, market prudential regulation. And that's the idea of bringing into the capital markets and especially to asset managers, the idea that, you know, the government, you know, in its great wisdom can say thou shalt not sell a particular type of security for fear of, you know, making more turbulent uh, the markets, but that's the surefire way of making the markets even worse and even more volatile. So unfortunately, these bank regulators don't understand um, the marketplace, and that's then translated onto the international scene. The Financial Stability Board, uh, with Mark Carney as the chairman, says you know this similar thing. So there are 35 members of this uh, FSB. There are only three capital markets regulators, and that's SEC, and then two European regulators. So they are at the kiddies table. You know, everybody else is a central banker sitting around it. And so you can see where that ultimately goes. And so I think that is a real, you know, scary situation for our capital markets. And even see what Troy says to this, but if you look at um, with IOSCO, um, the, uh, uh, with a money market uh, mutual fund uh, debate, but uh, you, Gallagher, and Aguilar had a dissent, um, and I don't know that that really affected anything at IOSCO. They went charging ahead mainly, I guess, because the chairman uh, at the time was, uh, you know, in in obviously had cooked up the whole um, debate there. But uh, anyway, I just uh, I think it's really interesting to see the, the SEC. I hope will continue to be engaged on the international scene, and I just think it needs to carry a bigger stick uh, in many ways. On on a number of those of those points. You know, a lot of people talk in terms of, you know, these are turf battles, what have you, between capital markets regulators and banking regulators, you know, the SEC specifically, the, the Fed on the other hand. And I actually don't think about it in terms of this being about a turf battle. It's, it's to, to Paul's point, but to put in, in, these, in these terms, a regulator's mission matters, right, in terms of the trade-offs that they're ultimately going to be prepared to make. So if you think about capital markets and the different institutions that are in our capital markets, you know, the traditional purview, if you will, of of the SEC. It's not about the SEC and its turf versus the Fed and its turf, et cetera. It's that the SEC has a particular mission. Capital markets regulators have a particular mission. And that's going to inform the trade-offs they're prepared to make when it comes to the policy judgments that then flow through to the rules of the road. Well, if you have a very different mission, if you have a safety and soundness mission, you're going to stand ready to make a different set of trade-offs then if your mission is, is investor protection, fair early markets, capital formation, kind of speaking to investor choice, opportunities to earn the upside, even if it means you take on some risk of the downside, those are two very different perspectives. And so I think when it comes to thinking about, not just if you go back to the FSOC discussion, but if you think about the role of the FSB, you think about the role of IOSCO, you think about lots of these other bodies, not only one, 
each different country needs to be mindful of its broader institutional infrastructure and what's going to work for them. It's not to say you don't cooperate and you don't learn, but you need to you know, understand that there are differences across jurisdictions. But number two, the, the source of the, of the, of the pressure, <laughs> of the suasion, and what's the lens through which that group is looking at it. Are they looking at it through the same lens, with the same mission, with the same goal, with the same objective and purpose? If not, what they are looking to do may be great by virtue of their objective, but I got a different objective. And I need to be faithful to the objective I have if I'm, say, a regulator at the SEC. I think that's a very uh, simple way of capturing it. Mission matters and keeping an eye on that point, and it plays itself out through a lot of the different discussions we've been having. I think that's 100% true. I mean, it, it, this is not just questions about jurisdiction grabbing or that kind of thing. It really is that people are trying to be true to their mandates and their mandates and their, the, the statutes under which they operate are very different. They have different missions, different focus, and um, it makes it very challenging when they're asked to sort of come together and reach consensus through either the FSOC or the FSB. So now that we've taken a look back, um, and I want to make sure we leave some time for questions at the end, let's take a quick look to the future. Um, and Troy, I, I seem to keep coming back to you with sort of these difficult, vague <laughs> questions, but. Uh, He's a professor. Yeah, right. yeah. One, one thing that I spend a lot of time thinking about is, you know, there is criticism saying, uh, you know, the SEC has, uh, you know, certain things on its rulemaking agenda and they could be choosing other things. You know, if you're in the seat of the <clears throat> SEC chair and there's a, a law that says that the SEC shall implement certain rules, how should the SEC chair prioritize the SEC's agenda if he or she might not, in their own view, uh, agree uh, with a, a rulemaking mandate that's uh, imposed by law? How would you think about that? So one question is, is there a deadline or not? Right. Uh, if there's no deadline, that may have some uh, impact uh, in terms of how things get prioritized. That's that's one consideration. Another consideration, though, is kind of the big picture, which is ultimately you got to do what you think is going to be right by way of mission, by way of the overall mandate uh, of the agency. You know, being pragmatic and certainly be being properly respectful of the directives of Congress, I think, is consistent with all of that. If you find yourself in a circumstance, though, where you really say, look, we have many, many other things we need to do, and even a stronger version of that, I actually think doing this thing is going to maybe do more harm <laughs> than good, right? You can, can go down that path as well. I think part of it is, is, is spending time with um, the appropriate members of Congress and explaining how you're thinking about it, your choices, how you want to prioritize, right, trying to explain, not just be seen as saying no, but explain how doing something a little bit later is actually in the greater good of the agency's mission and the goals that that that's shared. I think that's uh, a part of it. But then you get to the to the actual, you know, doing it, right, when it comes to doing the rulemaking, if you get to that uh, point or when you get uh, to that point, and let's assume you have a rule that you really just disagree with. So this isn't just a matter of how do you prioritize and thinking about the opportunity cost of that time and effort, which is a real cost of any under, uh, undertaking, what aren't you doing that actually is a higher and better use of agency resources. But let's assume you've crossed 
uh, that divide, and you say, okay, we're going to do this. And the question, how do you do it? What do you do? And if you have a rulemaking that you actually disagree with, there are still ways to do it that are better than worse. Even if on net you think it's still not the right thing to do. So what are some, some ways, setting aside getting into you know, hypotheticals and substantive details that we, could, that we could string out? But a couple of techniques. One is, is, is disclosure an option as compared to a substantive mandate? Right? Disclosure-based rule as compared to a substantive rule. That's one approach, and that's entirely consistent with the animating philosophy for the federal securities laws. So not anything that's outside of what is core to the agency. But number two, and related to that, uh, is the greater use of defaults. Right? I mean, we often think of either you mandate something or you do nothing. There's a middle ground, which is you do a default that you let parties opt out of. And, and, and that's something, frankly, that Cass Sunstein, when he, he was head of OIRA, talked about. I mean, Cass Sunstein talked about more disclosure-based regulation as compared to substantive-based regulation. Talked about greater use of defaults and opt-outs. So those are some techniques that aren't fast and loose with an obligation, but say, hey, here's a way to move forward. Here's a way to strike appropriate balances. And it's something that folks who have a lot of different perspectives on policy have recognized can be an effective technique for rulemaking. Yeah, well, I agree with that. I think, um, you know, the, if you look back at, especially Dodd-Frank, uh, you know, see so the 111th Congress uh, adopted that with hardly any substantive hearings, like uh, and it mentioned the Folker Rule is one, but, you know, a lot of the other, especially Title IX, which affects the SEC, and then Title 15, of course, with conflict minerals and whatnot, this Christmas tree of all these different uh, mandates were, real, it was really crazy, right? Um, that was sprinkled around this uh, statute. And unfortunately, I think, um, you know, even when Congress changed and we got the 112th Congress uh, coming in, the SEC didn't change at all, and unfortunately, so the chairman at the time pushed through what were the most politicized of the different rules. And um, and so when you look at the SEC has maybe done about 50% of the rules, something like that, there's still, <coughs> excuse me, really important rules that are left to be done that are tied more to the financial crisis uh, than some of the ones that, uh, you know, had been adopted here in the last, uh, you know, or three years ago or something like that. So I think that's just, uh, you know, a real, a real problem. And if you look at Sarbanes-Oxley and compared to what happened with Dodd-Frank, look at all of the, the real partisan three to two votes that have come down over the last, you know, five years or whatever it is. I think that's truly a shame. And when you look back to what happened on Sarbanes-Oxley, I mean, People work together. A lot of that was Harvey Pitt, I think, uh, you know, to his credit, uh, you know, trying to work on a consensus among folks. But we, almost all of those, I think, that I remember were, um, were unanimous uh, votes of the commission. They might not have been perfect rules, but uh, anyway, I think uh, that had a completely different uh, spirit um, of by which uh, we tackled those things. So I think that's the real tragedy um, of the whole thing. And then one last story, 19H coming out of, if you remember back in your way back in mind of the uh, Market Reform Act in 1990, it was large trader reporting rule. But both, I was there both with uh, Richard Breeden and Arthur Levitt when they decided, well, you know what, there's real, we have tons of other things to do. This is, you know, maybe not the best use of our time. So even though it was in statute, you know, Dodd-Frank now, you know, basically adopted something even, you know, more um, uh, intrusive than uh, what 19H contemplated. But anyway, so for uh, that just was not, um, you know, really front and center. There were a lot of other things to do. 
I think given the magnitude of Dodd-Frank and the Christmas tree approach that it clearly had in some cases, um, there probably are more provisions there that the SEC has had some difficulty grappling with and realizing that they're basically under a, a mandate to do rulemaking for, but it's not something that was central to their mission. So conflict minerals obviously was the classic one. What I, I find um, interesting is it must be a tremendous challenge for them when they don't necessarily see the benefit of a rule to then do the cost-benefit analysis. And, and, um, and, you know, on things where they've had a passion, they've been challenged on the cost-benefit and not uh, done well on all occasions. So it must be particularly difficult when it's a rulemaking that they don't think was well, you know, based on a statutory provision that they don't think was well advised and then have to, they, because whether it's mandated by Congress or not, they still have to do the cost benefit. And, and one of the real risks to, to exactly your point, Annette, is when the agency, because, or probably any agency, when they're asked to do something they either they really don't think is the right thing to do or it's just outside the scope of expertise because it's outside right. the mission, it's outside what they do, the risks go up considerably that the consequence will actually be that more harm than good is done, which means you have all the time, the effort, you put the commission in a very difficult position, the hardworking staff in a very difficult position, only to find out that at the end of the road, not only did things not improve, but things have a very significant chance of actually deteriorating. That's, that's a, bad, it's a bad place on policy grants, it's a bad place on, on, on uh, time, effort, expense, uh, and the rest, so exactly your point. I want to turn in a second to questions from uh, folks in the audience, but just in, in terms of the last question, Paul, since we're talking about Congress, what are some ideas that you have uh, in terms of what Congress should think about doing to change the federal securities laws, if anything? Well, I have two hours to talk <laughs> about that, right? Uh, no, so the, uh, well, I, well, obviously repeal and replace Dodd-Frank would be the, I would put that at the top of the list. And so I think uh, the work that, uh, Chairman Henserling is doing, um, I think, will be very, you know, uh, interesting to see uh, what he comes up with, and especially with respect to uh, um, uh, treating Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and, uh, you know, addressing that whole issue, and they are doing exactly what they did before the, um, uh, before the financial crisis, but now the scary thing for all of us taxpayers is that we are now truly on the hook. Beforehand, it was uh, you know the implicit guarantee. Now it's a full guarantee, and um, and they're doing exactly the same thing. So um, you know I think it's high time for that to be addressed. There are other things. I mean there are a lot of issues. SRO status, the self-regulatory organizations. You know, if you have the chairman of the or the head of the uh, of one of them call himself now uh, call his group an independent regulatory organization rather a self-regulatory organization. I think it's high time that Congress re uh, look again at this whole issue um, uh, and, and reassess uh, you know what does a self-regulatory um, organization mean and what's the transparency issues due process rule of law and all of that. Um, and there are other issues out there. Um, 14A8. Uh, which has to do with shareholder proposals. This is mainly a creature of uh, court, of, of judge-made law, going back to a decision called Dow Chemical against um, 
I think in Medicine Sans Frontier or something like that. I don't remember what the group was. But uh, anyway, back into the 70s where the D.C. Circuit said, oh, yeah, you know, if you see something on the front page of the uh, newspaper, then that's something germane for the shareholders to discuss at a corporate meeting, which is, you know, not, I think, the, the best use of um, shareholder time and doesn't really um, adhere to uh, corporate governance as uh, you know laid out by uh, the various states. So I think it's high time that 14A8 um, be um, looked um, at again. And there are other ancillary issues with respect to 10B5, Halliburton case, and, and things like that, Basic versus Levinson with respect to class action lawsuits. Um, but the main thing I would hope is, you know, to us for, to find ways to try to depoliticize the SEC. Maybe that's impossible uh, in the current political climate, but I really do think that most of these issues should not be political. They're all about, you know, what's best for investors and to be an investor, you need to have a couple of nickels to run rub together in order to invest. And too many of the politicized activists are not investors, and they kind of get into the head, what do we think investors want to do? But they're not investors. They have no um, idea of uh, really the approach and, and, the, and the ramifications of some of the things that they advocate. So anyway, so with that, I'll... So with that, if it's okay with everybody, let's let's open it up, and if anybody in the audience has questions, raise your hand. And before asking uh, the question, it'd be great if you could introduce yourself and allow for someone with a microphone to come over. So, uh, Roman Bueller with the uh, Madison Coalition, <clears throat> and talked about uh, Troy. You talked about regulatory overreach. And looking ahead over the next 20 years at what is likely to happen in the regulation of capital markets, what I'd be interested in what each or any of you think about the idea that's been advanced in Congress and elsewhere uh, that major new federal regulations should be uh, approved uh, by Congress. And of course, it doesn't look like that's going to happen in Congress alone, but there's an effort now by states. Uh, similar to the one that states used to force Congress to propose the Bill of Rights, where now 19 state legislative chambers have asked Congress to propose a constitutional amendment that would require that major new regulations be approved by Congress. Your thoughts? Well, I, well I, I'm happy to um, take that one first. But um, so there have been a lot of ideas over time, the RAINS Act and, and other things, which I think are really salutary. You have, unfortunately, with Dodd-Frank and the reason why the SEC <clears throat> is so politicized now is that Congress didn't do its job. It passed 2,319 pages of a statute that had all sorts of mandates, but they didn't, they didn't have any hearings. They didn't figure out how they didn't make any decisions on how it should be approached. They just kind of punted it to the various agencies. And so then you're stuck with the non-elected, uh, really politically non-accountable um, uh, people, commissioners uh, making these decisions in most cases, and then staff, you know, otherwise who are completely, you know, not even uh, responsible uh, to uh, uh, the political, um, you know, winds going either way. So it really is incumbent, I think, on Congress to make these decisions and be responsible and then to have a view of uh, 
uh, you know, to have a chance to either approve or disapprove uh, rules. The trouble is there are so many thousands of rules that come out and the thousands of pages um, in the federal uh, register um, with rules being published, you know, you have to focus on, you know, which ones are important and which ones are not. OMB has that kind of process uh, down, so at least there's some definition. But it is a huge issue, and the more Congress delegates, uh, the less it's, you know, in the a proper sphere of being debated, um, you know, publicly and in Congress and by the people who are immediately accountable to the, to the electorate. Just to hit the other side of the, of the coin is the importance of keeping focus on the analysis done at the agencies, right? So we can just shorthand that in terms of cost-benefit analysis, the focus uh, on data. Because they're going to have, and how, however much right, they're going to have, they're going to have a lot of power, a lot of authority. With Dodd Frank, we see that that's that, that's grown. It will, you know, ebb and flow over uh, the decades. But the importance of of how those agencies go about discharging their responsibilities, just from the perspective of sound decision making, which again is the cost benefit, couple that with a retrospective review, more by way of economics and data, and then I think laying out the analysis and explaining the trade offs. I think one of the virtues, from my perspective, of this kind of rigorous cost-benefit analysis is when you say, look, here's the analysis, here's how things could go well, here's how things could go poorly, and here's how at least a majority of this agency is prepared to trade those things off and let that be known and open and transparent. I think that's just healthy government, if you will, and I think it's important for that to continue to take further, uh, further root uh, and, and, uh, and, and just be the way things get done. Yeah, I... I don't think it would be possible or advisable to have Congress um, approve every new federal regulation. It, uh, Congress has enough difficulty passing anything, and so I, it's, it's clearly uh, brilliantly designed to have no new federal regulations of any kind, but, um, which is probably where you'd end up. But, um, I mean, there are already, you know, protections in place. If you have a major rule, there's a delay in when, you know, how, how, when the rule can be implemented so that Congress has the ability to go back and act before it's put into place if it thinks it was ill-advised. Um, uh, you know, I, I think it, it really would uh, be sort of counter to this notion of independent agency. Once, once Congress decides what they want uh, in the legislation, they really do have to delegate to the to the agency that that has the uh, you know the the ability to do the analytics that that is required to do the cost benefit that has the expertise to um, you know to promulgate the rules. If you have a question over here, hi, Thea Knight of the Cato Institute. Um, I have a question that you've kind of all touched on, but I might want to dig a little bit deeper into it, which is the concept of materiality, which I think in the past we all kind of thought that you know it meant uh, return on investment, but obviously there are now investors who say, no, we're interested in things like political contributions or conflict minerals. How would you suggest the SEC approach this? Do we need to think about what materiality is, or is it is our understanding of it in the past still relevant and some of these other concerns are really not part of what uh, corporate disclosures should include? 
Well, I think it's uh, I think it's now more important than ever um, because uh, you know you have um, again like I kind of discussed earlier about you have uh, groups out there with ulterior motives, right? So they are not necessarily just in interested in X because of X. They're interested in it because of other things that they think that they can achieve from their own political stances uh, that they can't achieve elsewhere and they view you know the path of least resistance is to either you know agitate so that the SEC adopts some rule or get Congress to do it or something like that but it really then dissipates what we talk about if we want if we truly think that uh, investors uh, should be able to pick up uh, a disclosure statement and then decide whether to buy sell or hold a particular investment and we're geared towards the you know average reasonable investor not to uh, somebody who has some special proclivities and then mandate because again every mandate has costs and has other repercussions that ensue from you know government uh, requiring something if people who want to find out about a certain type of thing you know ask companies or agitate or, or something like that on their own, then, you know, and there's a market for that, and that it, there are a lot of companies out there that, you know, have responded um, to that. And so that sh then ought to attract those investors, and, and those companies ought to be presumably happier to get those investors, or, or the investors will direct their money in that way and not to, to others. So there is a market even in, in those sorts of things, and we've seen that play out uh, with respect to. Uh, some things in the past even you know like sanctions against south africa and and whatnot that you didn't necessarily need a government mandate there was a lot of pr uh, private ordering uh, that uh, achieved um, what some of the groups wanted so and again i think we're talking about ultimately shareholders and investors who are bearing the burden of all these costs um, and uh, there's a lot of uh, you know, and so I think we have to, the government needs to be very careful before it starts uh, uh, putting down mandates on, in that effect. And I think when, when you think about materiality as it's unfolded in the courts over the, over the decades, part of it is, is to address the avalanche of information concern, the information overload concern. But I think exactly to your, to your question, part of it too is, is such that materiality is with an orientation towards the mission behind the federal security laws. Which is not to say that there aren't other missions that may be laudable, but they're just not the mission that the federal securities laws is about. And so to start using or reinterpreting, my view, start reinterpreting, reconceiving, rethinking about kind of these cornerstone features in a way that would actually start to change what the federal securities laws are about runs very considerable risk, frankly, in terms of uncertainty, lack of predictability, what's uh, in fashion today, what's in fashion tomorrow, what's in fashion, you know, in fashion down uh, the line, where are the contours then once you start going down? That's not a slippery slope argument. I think that's just would be the natural evolution. And so materiality has the shape that it has. It's been reinforced over decades of jurisprudence. I think my personal view is it has served investors and our markets well and that it ought to be uh, preserved and adhered to on a going forward basis. Well, and, and the thing is, if you, I mean, to that point, if you give up the touchstone of materiality, then disclosure becomes a plaything of whatever kind of majority you can cobble together among the five commissioners um, at the SEC. And then I think 
then it becomes a truly um, random type of, uh, of system, and I don't think that serves anybody well. And then you get into the ulterior motives and, and other um, shenanigans that can go on, the name and shame issue and all of that. And so you are affecting then through uh, you know, the laws that, had, that were not conceived to do that in the first place, you know, actual um, behavior then um, in the marketplace. And I don't think that's what our securities law should be about. And so thus, I think Thurgood Marshall and TSC Industries versus Northway or whatever it was, was right when he, um, you know, talked about uh, materiality and in the disclosure system. David Burton with the Heritage Foundation. Uh, small startup companies have a macroeconomically significant effect on innovation and job creation. Uh, yet, until the Congress passed the Jobs Act, the SEC had somewhere between or paid almost no attention or no attention to the regulatory burden on small and startup companies. I was wondering what you all thought was the reason for that, uh, what could be done to increase the SEC's focus on the regulatory burden on small and startup companies and small public companies, and what substantive changes you think would be most salutary in effect on the impact on small startup and small public companies? Well, all right. Well, that's, uh, that's uh, I think that's a great question. And if you look back at the JOBS Act and how back in 2012, it was kind of like a perfect storm in favor of uh, something like the Jobs Act. You had a president who, you know, was wanted to be reelected and was focusing on, you know, what can I say that I've done with respect to, um, you know, increasing jobs. And he had folks in Congress, of course, who felt that there was a huge burden on startup companies. And you look at the number of IPOs having plummeted. And even now, you know, there's been a bit of an uptick uh, uh, probably because of the Jobs Act, um, but um, uh, you know, still in the doldrums as far as um, you know what it was historically in the United States. I think there are you know myriad reasons for that, and mostly regulatory burdens uh, on companies. Um, so, and even besides you know reporting requirements and and things like that, but just uh, sort of the mechanics of of going public and uh, just the the process of you know between professionals and, and everything else. But that's not to say that, you know, there aren't good ideas out there. We'll see now crowdfunding, you know, is just now about to really um, uh, allowed to take off. And um, I think the SEC is, you know, uh, finally appropriately, uh, um, you know, uh, gone forward and, and uh, you know, with respect to uh, the rules there. And uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how that works. And sure, there's you know, a, a possibility of fraud coming out of, uh, you know, things like that. But you know what, that's, that happens, um, that's the potential in almost anything in the capital market. So we have to, uh, you know, but we have to try things and see, and then hopefully regulators and enforcement folks will be vigilant, uh, you know, to stop, uh, to stop uh, would-be fraudsters. So, but, uh, you know, we'll see how that takes off. And I think, uh, you know, that's, that's the main thing I'm looking forward to seeing how it comes about yeah you know I think Paul's right the the concern is about investor protection I mean the concern was that if you lifted some of these requirements it would it would be inconsistent with investor protection because you might have 
more fraud in this area. I think it will remain to be seen now with some of these Jobs Act changes. I, it, it certainly seemed to me that the Commission was a little uncomfortable with some of what they were required to do in the Jobs Act, but um, Congress spoke and we'll see, you know, how it comes out and they'll have to monitor it carefully. Um, but I certainly agree with you that um, it is important to uh, encourage, you know, capital formation by, you know, encouraging small companies. The SEC had an office of, uh, of small business but, uh, within the Division of Corporation Finance, um, but I don't think it was a, you know, front and center priority by any means. So I, I would just add a couple of quick points. I think watching how 506C plays out, watching how Reg A plus plays out, watching how crowdfunding plays out, and standing ready to make improvements to try to make sure those have real life. Again, we're going to see how this is going to play itself out. So I think, one, keeping an eye on what's already been put in place. Uh, number two, continuing to think about innovative other approaches, uh, including venture exchanges and what kinds of legislative or regulatory um, uh, changes may uh, need to be made in order to allow for at least venture exchanges to, to have a shot uh, if there are folks who are so uh, inclined. Uh, and then third is on the point about, you know, investor protection and capital formation those are often framed as if it's one or the other. And I think what's important is to think about capital formation in investor protection terms in the following sense, that yes, protecting investors against downside, fraud, abuse, manipulation, what have you, is certainly you know, cornerstone to investor protection. But so is allowing them the chance to invest. And so when you think about expanded investment opportunities, we think about that as being good for the issuers who raise the money and then go do what they do, and that's good for employees and, and consumers and communities, et cetera. But in many, many, many instances, it proves to be good for the investors who have a chance to invest, either because they believe in the enterprise uh, and or because they actually are investing in something that's going to have a lot of financial success down, down the line. So I think as we start to think about, or if we can, more broadly start thinking about capital formation as serving fundamental investor interests and not just issuer interest, I think that too may open up the possibilities in terms of being willing uh, to do more to try to uh, foster capital formation, particularly for small business, but for businesses of all sizes. So we're a few minutes after two, so unfortunately I think we should wrap it up with apologies for anybody who didn't get a chance to ask your question. Um, so uh, I wanted to say uh, one more time, Paul, Annette, Troy, thanks so much. This was great. And also to all of you who came, uh, thanks again and hope you enjoyed it.